0: Well, as Linda said, we are in the book of Exodus uh, doing a series entitled God Revealed. Why would we study the book of Exodus? Well, Exodus is the history of Israel's salvation. It also reveals the pattern of salvation for us in Jesus. In fact, the New Testament talks about salvation in Jesus using Exodus language. And just as the Exodus sets the pattern for salvation... So the wilderness journey, it sets the pattern for the disciples' journey. We're to learn from it. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them, he's speaking about the people of Israel, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So Israel's experience is for our benefit. It's for our instruction. If we study their experience, we'll learn how to live life today, how to follow Jesus today. It's said that there are two things that you can do with history. You can learn from it, or you can ignore it. One cynic has said that the only thing that we have learned from history is that we have learned absolutely nothing from history. Well, that's a cynic's perspective. We do tend to repeat our mistakes from generation to generation. But the truth is that God did not give Israel an experience in the wilderness just to have an experience. It is there for our instruction. We are to learn from it. So, can we agree to learn from history today? A little louder? Can we, yes, okay, good, you're with me. Let's learn today. You'll, you'll be tested later today, for sure this week. What's the context of our passage today? Well, Israel has just come out of the land of Egypt, miraculously delivered from slavery. God brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptian armies were defeated. They come out on the other side of the sea, singing, dancing, singing a song for the ages, the song of Moses. They're worshiping God. Hey, God is Yahweh. He's the God who is mighty to save. He's the incomparable one. He fights for them. He is, his, his love, it's unchanging. He's going to be with them all the way, present with them, guiding them so they're worshiping. And you would think that they would just continue to worship and praise all the way, full of faith, ready for each challenge on the road ahead. After all, God has made a promise to Moses. This is what he said to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He, Yahweh, said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So they're on their way from the Red Sea to the mountain. What do they experience now? Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. Mara means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So, The text says that they went into the wilderness of Shur. Who is they? If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, this group is described. uh, 12-37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So, the 12 tribes of Israel are on a journey, about 600,000 men on foot, plus women and children. And there's also a mixed multitude going with them. Some Egyptians have joined them. There are probably slaves of other ethnic origins that join them. And so it's a large crowd with a whole bunch of livestock, flocks and herds. Lots of people, lots of animals on the move. They're on their way to worship Yahweh, going where God has asked them to go, Mount, Mount Sinai. Where is the wilderness of Shur? Well, the wilderness of Shur is this vast, sparsely populated, rugged region in the northern Sinai. It is between what is today the Suez Canal and the Negev of Israel. That's where they are on this journey. What's the first crisis after the Red Sea deliverance? Well, after a three-day journey, no water. So these refugees have consumed all of the water that they had carried with them for the journey. It's a matter of life and death. And then they see an oasis on the horizon, water. You can see them running, at least moving toward the water, thinking that now they will have life because of the oasis. They bend down to drink the water, and it is bitter, mara. I would imagine them saying excitedly in that moment, oh, what a great opportunity for God to reveal himself to us. This is awesome. What is God going to do now? He transformed the Nile into blood, the blood into sweet water. He parted the Red Sea. Water is his deal. Not so much. With their hopes dashed by the realization that it's bitter, Their anxiety sharpens. They panic. And we may quickly judge them for their lack of faith, but their issue is actually our issue. And their issue is essentially this you know, they have started to worship God and they think that the tests should be over. They think they're ready for life happily lived ever after. Uh, (laughs) This is the deal they're going to worship God and God will bless them. That's the deal. And so their lives should be lives of safety, of comfort, of satisfaction. What happens in the life of a person that begins to follow Jesus? You know, a person accepts Jesus as Savior and Lord. They realize that God has for them forgiveness of sin, eternal life. And then they start to follow Jesus and they face a a crisis. And the question is, can I trust Jesus with this real life challenge? Can, can I trust Jesus with the things that keep me awake at night? You know, it's one thing to trust God for salvation. It's a completely different thing to actually live out this salvation and follow Jesus in life when we're being tested by stuff that's concrete, that's real. So, first point in your outline, realize that you are on a spiritual journey designed by God for your good and for your growth. Realize you're on a spiritual journey designed by God for your good and your growth. When we face disappointment, discouragement, doubt, we need to remember that God is in the business of transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. We call it sanctification. God is making us holy. So Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God wants to do a work in us, and that's good news. What's he doing in the lives of the Israelites? Well, verse 25, he tested them. So in his sovereign providence, God allowed for a challenge, some hardship. So that their attitudes would be revealed. So that they would experience him in a new way. So that their trust level would be measured. You know, the tests, they come with choices within the situation. Different outcomes are possible. So is God just setting his people up for failure so that they'll fall flat on their faces? Is that what our God is about? No. God wants to reveal himself to them. They know him as the God who is mighty to save, the God who rescues, but they have much more to learn on this wilderness journey. It's an opportunity to meet him. It's an opportunity for their relationship with God to be strengthened. So the wilderness is their university. Their their spiritual muscles are being trained. It's one thing to take a class on faith. It's another thing to actually exercise faith in real life. So how do the people do in this test? Remember when they were at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was approaching. How did they respond then? Exodus chapter 14 verse 11. They said to Moses... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What a great question! What have you done to bring us, uh, done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Remarkable. They look back with regret, with with resentment. How will they do now? So it's interesting how the Lord will bring challenges into our lives, or at least allow us to face difficulties. How we'll go through the same test. As I was preparing this message, I was reviewing some of my life, and I noticed that God had tested me in a certain area one, two, three, four times. And I had to ask myself the question, have I learned anything? Or am I still responding the way I did 30 years ago? This is the first big big test for Israel after the great Red Sea victory. They've got a choice in this situation. They can trust God or they can grumble. What do they do? Verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, so unlike us. (laughs) They murmured, they whined. How long does it take us to uh, become anxious or whine? A few days? A few hours? In our world of instant gratification, maybe a few seconds? Oh, the internet is so slow today! Oh, how can I live through this? We forget dial-up. Some of you don't even remember dial-up. You could prepare a turkey while you waited to connect. You know, our our sin isn't found in our emotional response to the situation. We're wired to respond emotionally. It's our warning system. We get anxious. We experience fear. Sometimes we get angry. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, be angry but do not sin. It's what we do with our emotional response. Where do we go with it? The people of Israel, they they lapse into old thought, thought patterns. Oh, God has abandoned us. Just as fate would have it, we're going to die. In so many cultures, we, we grow up with this concept of fate. The things are just going to happen because that's the way it is. We're going to die. They're no longer enslaved to Egypt. They're enslaved to the old ways of thinking. For Israel, reality is defined by their circumstances, what they see around them. All they can see is their needs. They don't even think that God in his sovereign purposes might have something for them in this moment. That in this moment of weakness, he may want to reveal himself. You see, the wilderness for Israel is not the wilderness around them. It's the wilderness within them. Their souls are parched. So they respond exactly the same way that they did at the Red Sea. Well, Moses, our leader, he's not worthy of trust, and God is not trustworthy, even though he has revealed himself to be powerful over all things. You know, this has been the problem of humankind since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, think of it. They're in the Garden of Eden. They have all that they need, much more than they need, and yet they don't trust God to be truly good. They don't believe that he's worthy of their trust, and they go their own way. Point two. Before complaining when facing a challenge, turn your face to God and expect God to reveal himself. Before complaining when facing a challenge, turn your face to God and expect him to reveal himself. You see, God will use our perceived needs to teach us. What are our perceived needs? Well, things that are obvious. Food and clothing and housing and finances and employment and schooling, family, relationships? Do we see our lives as a training ground? The things that you went through this week, did you see it as a training ground? Did we turn to God and say, Hey God, in this situation, what are you teaching me? How are you transforming me into the likeness of your son Jesus? How how are you gonna reveal yourself to me now? Do we complain? Sometimes I can complain about really little things like, oh, this food has no flavor. If I'm in a fast food restaurant, it doesn't come fast enough. This couch that I'm sitting on here watching TV, it's just so uncomfortable. Little things. But then sometimes our complaining, it can actually become chronic. We're really dissatisfied with the job that we've done for a long time. We're disappointed with a significant relationship, and it just goes on and on. We're disillusioned because we think we've missed an opportunity and it's just not going to come back. Complain. We fall into bitterness. You know, in bitterness, we sometimes think that it's, it's because of what's out there. It's what people did to us. It's what God didn't do for us. No, bitterness comes from within. And our bitterness, it, it hinders our prayers. Our, our, our bitterness, it actually affects us mentally. Stanford University did a study uh, on people that complain. And they discovered that people that complain, they, their, their brains actually shrink. And they're not able to think critically. They're not able to see clearly. They can't solve problems. It's also been discovered that complaining, it affects our physical health. It breaks down our immune system. And so you become more susceptible to heart disease and diabetes and many other things. It affects our relationships, of course. Who wants to be with a bitter person? It affects our ministry because we're not even thinking about other people. We're just thinking about ourselves. We're curved in upon ourselves. And sometimes, you know, we can attend church for years with a bitter spirit and we think that we're actually justified in our bitterness because of what others have done to us or because of what God has allowed to happen. And sometimes we'll even confess, oh yes, God is sovereign, but we're wallowing in bitterness. What a massive contradiction. If chronic complaint and bitterness characterize us at all, we need to know that we are not responding to life as God would have us respond. We're missing it. We're looking down. We're looking around. We're focused on ourselves. We're anything but dead to ourselves. Phil Vischer, he produced the uh, groundbreaking children's series uh, VeggieTales. How many of you grew up watching Veggie Tales? No one wants to confess it. (laughs) How many grew up watching Veggie Tales with their children? Yes. Epic series. Uh, Phil Vischer, he later produced What's in the Bible, a series walking families through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. But I grew up on Veggie Tales with my children, singing silly songs with Larry. Like classics, like, oh, where, oh, where is my hairbrush? Why don't we sing that here? What a great song. (laughs) Another great song. Everybody's got a water buffalo. Yes, I'm still bitter because I haven't found my water buffalo. You know, Veggie Tales. it's uh, sold more than 65 million copies. Uh, It's been featured in major magazines and newspapers, even spoofed by, you wouldn't know this, but spoofed by Saturday Night Live and, and The Simpsons. We don't watch those shows. But... Spoofed, just so you know. Famous. Phil Vischer, he created uh, characters like Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber when he was about 25 years old in Chicago, an animator. And he wanted to integrate his faith with filmmaking. That was his objective. He, together with his wife Lisa and a a team, they landed VeggieTale videos in one-third of American households with young children. Now that's amazing success, right? That's a huge impact on American culture. And so in his mind, he was doing this all for God and for the kingdom of God. And then at the peak of Phil's success, everything turned upside down. Over-aggressive expansion coupled with a lawsuit from a former distributor forced Phil's company big-idea productions into bankruptcy in 2003 and when that started to happen Phil thought okay God is going to save my company because at the end of the day it's in his interest it is about him but he remembers sitting at the back of a room and watching his company and his characters and his dream being auctioned off so how would he respond Uh, bitterness anger God it's all wrong We'll come back to Phil. How did Moses respond to his crisis? What did he do when the people turned on him? Verse 25, Moses cried to the Lord. He calls out to Yahweh for help and God directed him to a log. The word there is tree. So, and then he does just what God commands him to do. He takes the log, he throws it into the water and the water becomes sweet. Sweeter than whistler spring water. His one prayer An act of obedience does more. It's more effective than all of the grumbling of the people of Israel. Just a side note, it's interesting in Scripture that God seems to specialize in trees that bring healing. The cross is referred to as the tree, and it's through the cross, through the crucifixion of Jesus, that our wounds are healed. When you go to the New Jerusalem in in, in Revelation, uh, the tree of life is found in the New Jerusalem, and in the leaves of that tree, there's healing for the nations. So just a side note, something that's interesting. Here at Marah, Yahweh clearly inter- intervenes, and He makes the water pure. Why? Verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them, saying if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. So statute and rule, they refer to the same thing. God is establishing a principle for his If they diligently listen, if they pay careful attention, if they adopt his way as the measure of what is right and obey, God will care for them. They won't suffer from the plagues that afflicted the Egyptians. No, Yahweh is their healer. What are they to learn here? Learn to trust and obey the voice of Yahweh, your healer. Really simple. And it's what we need to learn. Learn to trust and obey the voice of Yahweh, your healer. The word healer there, it refers to physical healing. It refers to emotional healing. It also refers to spiritual healing. To heal is to cure. It's to make whole. It is to mend. It is to restore God is asking for full loyalty and obedience so that they might walk under his protective, healing hand in all of life. What has he commanded thus far? Well, he has already given them instructions around the Passover. He has taught them things about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They know they are to consecrate the firstborn. They know that there's a a cloud of, of fire or a pillar of fire before them, a cloud during the day, that they are to follow God, that they are to listen to his voice. They're in this covenant relationship with Yahweh, and they are to learn obedience, to be faithful. What does that mean for us? If we are to learn from this, what does it mean for us? Well, just as Israel was freed from a life of slavery in Egypt, so we have been freed from a life of slavery to sin through Jesus. Sin no longer has power over us, according to the book of Romans. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea to new life on the other side, if we're followers of Jesus, then we've passed through the waters of baptism, we've died to self, and we have risen to new life in Jesus. Just as Israel embarked on a spiritual pilgrimage following Yahweh, facing challenges, so we embark on a spiritual journey with Jesus as we face challenges. What does the healing look like along the way? Well, we often think of physical healing. When we hear the word healing, we often go to physical healing first. And God does heal physically to lengthen our days for his glory so that we're aware of his presence. But at the core of healing is not physical healing, and God does not always heal physically. So I think of David Watson. David Watson was a wonderful evangelical leader in the Church of England about 35 years ago. He wrote a wonderful book, I I Believe in the Church. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, prayer teams from around the world flew to England to pray for him. People believed that God would restore him because he was such a great leader in his prime. He believed that he would be healed physically because he had prayed for other people and they had been healed. He was suffering from cancer, terminal cancer, and as he weakened the Lord began to speak to him. And he wrote about this in his book, Fear No Evil. And what he heard from the Lord was that during his life he had been so busy for God, doing stuff for God, that he had had no time to be with God. And all God was asking of him was that he, David, would come to him and love him and know him. He discovered what life is all about. And then passed away. Read that book, Fear No Evil. What's at the core of our healing? Jesus says, John chapter 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you're drinking bitter water, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow a trickle, just a trickle. No, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I have liver, living water for you. By my spirit. An everlasting supply of life. The core of your healing is spiritual healing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So, in the wilderness of Shur, a tree was thrown into the bitter waters of Mara, and the waters of that oasis were transformed into pure water. When it comes to the bitter waters of our souls, Jesus took our bitterness upon himself on the cross, on the tree. Only Jesus could bear the weight of our sin. Only through his death could our sins be forgiven. Could we be reborn to a living hope, be re- reborn to a life of faith and hope, rather than a life of regret and resentment and complaining and bitterness. There was no other way. By his wounds we healed. He bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And that spiritual healing that we experience in Jesus, it opens the way to emotional healing. If we walk with him, if we listen to his voice and follow, it's there for us. So we're freed from alienation, from being alone. No, God is in us, now and forever. We're, we're freed from perpetual brokenness, healing presence of the Holy Spirit within us. We're freed from a life that's meaningless. No, we've been recreated in Christ for his purposes, so every moment, every second is filled with meaning. We receive a new identity. We are no longer under guilt. We're forgiven. We no longer live under the shame of sin. No, we're sons and daughters, full members of the kingdom. We are no longer unloved. We are loved unconditionally. We are no longer rejected. We are accepted by God himself. That's who we are. And as we walk with Jesus, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We begin to think differently. We receive the mind of Christ. We begin to see life from God's perspective. And so when we face the bitter waters of our life experience, we don't respond as Israel did and just say, Oh God, why this? And sit there in complaint and bitterness no, we look to God, we cry out to Him and receive from Him direction and hope and faith and the power to live. We turn our faces to God and we trust and obey rather than looking inward and down. And we'll hear things like this, what the Lord said to Isaiah in Isaiah forty three nineteen Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You know when Phil Vischer, the creator of Veggie Tales, when when he lost everything, at least lost his company, his characters, his dream, God showed him that he had become miserable. He'd become miserable trying to save the world. His work for God had become more important than his relationship with God. He details the dramatic rise and fall of Big Idea Productions in his book, Me, Myself, and Bob. When he lost all of those things, he thought that he had lost everything, but by God's grace, he had not lost his relationship with God the Father. And in that moment, he discovered his true worth, that God actually wasn't all that interested in his success. God just wanted him to learn to love him. Bob says that today he just wants to be a jellyfish. Why is that? Well, he's a creative soul, and he talks about a jellyfish just being suspended in the love and the grace of God and carried along by the current. And so that's what he wants to be, a jellyfish, suspended by God's love and grace and carried along by the current, of the rivers of the Holy Spirit. That's what he desires for himself and for others. And so he speaks to many that have lost their dreams. It was after that experience of losing Big Idea Productions that he wrote the series, What's in the Bible, created that DVD series for children and their families. He continues to minister, but it's from a different perspective. You see, he's found life. And when you hear him speak, there are just rivers of living water flowing from his soul. And one of the things that he says is that God didn't need his big business to win the world. God doesn't need famous, great preachers to win the world. He doesn't need powerful businessmen to save the world. He needs, this is what Phil says, he needs some people that have learned to walk with God in real life. That's for all of us. Jesus would have all of us, every one of us, no matter what our condition, no matter where we've come from, he would have us discover what it means to truly live, to walk with him in real life. And as we do that, God receives the glory. So can we learn from history today? Oh, that's lame. You people need healing. Can we learn from history today? Yes. Amen. What happens after Mara for Israel? Well, the Lord leads them to Elam, which is a retirement village in Surrey. And you may say, what God, Surrey? No, Surrey's a great place, Pastor Ron. Awesome. Hey, Surrey. The Lord leads them to Elam, which is an oasis. It's it's a place of rest, a place of of abundance. Uh, Twelve springs of water. uh, Seventy... Palm trees. 12 and 70, they're numbers that symbolize completeness, wholeness, healing, perfection. So Elam, what it does is it foreshadows the promised land. And there in that oasis moment, the people of Israel are to ponder. They've faced some challenges. They haven't done so well, but God in his grace has been amazing. And so in the oasis moments of life, rest and remember the lessons. It will prepare you for the journey ahead. This summer may be an oasis moment for you. In the oasis moments of life, rest and remember the lessons. It'll prepare you for the journey ahead. Israel has a lot to reflect on, a lot to remember. Uh, You know, Yahweh is the God who is mighty to save. He redeemed them from slavery. He's their guide. He got them to Elam, that place of rest. He's their provider. He purified the water. He will be their healer along the way. Listen to Moses. The people of Israel are just about to enter the promised land. So 40 years later, this is what Moses says to the people. Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, as I said earlier, we are all going to face challenges this week. Our hearts will be tested. How will we respond? Will we look down at our, our circumstances in despair or turn our faces to God in hope? Will we base our response on the truth of who he, he is or will we base our response on our anxious, fearful souls? Will we learn the lessons God has for us to learn? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us into the likeness of Jesus? Will we allow the experience to increase our faith for us to grow in our hunger for God, what life is truly about? Oh, this summer, may we take time to ponder. May we learn the lessons of history from Israel, and may we learn the lessons that God has for us today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. I'm going to pray for three groups of people. Some here might think this is just a crazy story. I want to pray for you. Some here might be ready to say yes to Jesus for the same time. For the first time, I want to pray for you. And then I want to pray for all of us. So Lord, I, I pray for those who might be here listening to this story and they doubt your very existence. They look at this story, they read the scriptures and wonder whether the scriptures could even provide a foundation for their lives. Lord, I pray that they would ask you to reveal yourself to them. May they just open their hearts to you, Lord, I pray. And for those who are here that are are tired and broken and have tried many different things, and here in their brokenness, they are just ready to say, Jesus, save me. They're just crying out to you for salvation. Lord, meet them today. I pray that they would hear the voice of your spirit and that they would surrender to you and receive forgiveness of sin. Receive the gift of eternal life. If you're committing your life to Jesus, if you're surrendering to him, please talk to the person who brought you or go back to the welcome center, come to the front. Don't leave without talking to someone. We want to encourage you. And now, Lord, I pray for all of us here that are following you Lord, sometimes we forget that we're actually on a spiritual journey with you. We forget that we live under your sovereignty, your design. We forget that our experiences are for our good, for our growth, to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord. Oh God, before complaining when facing a challenge, may we turn to you today, this week, and and expect great things from you. Oh God, reveal yourself to us. Thank you for the way that you were gracious in the life of Israel. Thank you, Lord, that you're gracious in our lives. Thank you that you are present to teach us to trust you, to obey you, to obey your voice, Lord, you're our healer, and so I pray for your healing on me, on your people And, oh God, in the oasis moments of life, may we rest and remember what you have taught us and give you the glory and allow you to prepare us for the journey ahead. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you're going to work in our lives this week, the way that you will use us for your glory wherever we are. Thank you that you go with us. You're faithful. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great weekend, great week. God bless you.